Okay, I'm going to start with a question. Aside from Jesus Christ, who is the greatest person in the Bible? Aside from Jesus Christ. Now, okay, anyone else? Paul? Anyone else? David? These are all great options, right? And so if you were to ask Jesus this question, who besides you is the greatest person in the Bible? We might allow our minds to wander a little bit as to how Jesus might answer that. Interestingly, Jesus does answer that question in Scripture. He answers that question in Matthew 11. But before we get to that verse, Jesus does not, uh, Jesus does not mention the guys we think he would. We, we think that Jesus would mention maybe Noah, who's described as a man who was blameless among the men of his generation. He built the ark. It took, took him a hundred years to build that thing in the middle of the desert. Great man of faith. How about Abraham, the man of faith, friend of God? How about Moses, who delivered his people with God's help out of slavery in Egypt? Uh, what about King David? Someone mentioned King David. King David, the only man in the Bible called a man after God's own heart. He wrote half of the Psalms in the Bible, considered the greatest king of Israel. And Jesus doesn't mention him. He doesn't mention Esther. He doesn't mention Daniel. He doesn't mention Ruth. He doesn't mention any of those. In Matthew 11:1, 1, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has been none greater than John the Baptist. So many of us have heard that verse before, right? And so we don't really think about what Jesus is actually saying there. Why John the Baptist? What a crazy choice. John the Baptist, are we talking about this same dude that lived out in the wilderness? Or are we talking about the guy that dressed in camel's hair clothes? He's the greatest? The guy that actually ate bugs. Really, Jesus? The guy that ate bugs. Man, he liked locusts. Locust sandwiches. Locust burgers. Locust tacos. The guy was just eating locusts, wild honey. Camel's hair. Weird dude. He's the greatest, Jesus. And Jesus says... Yes, he's the greatest. And I believe today's passage explains why, in Jesus' view, there has been no man born of woman greater than John the Baptist. And so make sure you're there in John chapter 3, as we pick up in verse 22, where we left off a couple weeks ago. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. Here we go. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi. Uh, That man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. May God bless us as we study his word today and apply it to our lives. We'll stop there for now, finish the passage a little later. Well, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, focus on Jesus' ministry in Galilee after John the Baptist was arrested and imprisoned by King Herod. But John records for us in his first four chapters some of the key events of Jesus' early months of ministry. We've talked about that over the past couple months. Uh, Before John the Baptist was arrested, in these first four chapters, John shares with us some of those key moments in his ministry, those moments that overlapped 
with Jesus' ministry. So while Jesus was turning water into wine, John the Baptist was preaching a message of repentance and baptizing people. Uh, While Jesus was making himself a little whip and driving out the money changers there in the temple courts, John the Baptist was preaching a message of repenting and he was baptizing people. And while Jesus was having that fantastic conversation here in chapter 3 with that leader Nicodemus, where he shares John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. While that conversation is going on, meanwhile, John the Baptist is preaching a message of repentance and baptizing people. And here in verse 22, Jesus' ministry is on a collision course with John's ministry. As he and his disciples go into the Judean countryside, where Jesus and, as we find out in the next chapter, primarily his disciples spend time baptizing. Interestingly, the Apostle John is the only gospel writer who mentions Jesus and his disciples doing any baptizing. He mentions it, as I said, here in chapter 3 and again at the beginning of chapter 4. And according to John 3.23, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. Now, we're not certain where this city of Anon is. I'm not even certain how to pronounce it correctly. Uh, But here's a map. We're going to give you an idea of where it most likely was. So Bible scholars are largely in agreement that it was probably about halfway between Jerusalem in the south and Nazareth up north. They're not too far from the Jordan River. But in that area of Anon, we know today that it's an area with a lot of natural springs. And because of these natural springs, there are these various pools of water. So that would have been an area where, you know, John the Baptist is known for baptizing in the Jordan River. But according to John, he also spent time baptizing here using these pools, these springs of water where he would baptize people. And so Jesus goes to the same area teaching people and having his disciples baptize them as well. Jesus shows up. Now, from a human point of view, whose turf is it? From a human point of view. It's John's turf, right? Are we all in agreement? Who was there first? John the Baptist was there first. So Jesus not only is coming into John's backyard, you could say he's coming into John's front yard. It's his turf. He was there first. And John the Baptist's disciples are getting a little miffed that Jesus and his disciples come in after John the Baptist and start cutting in on his territory. Look at verse 25. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. Now, the gospel writer doesn't give us the details of this argument. Evidently, it's not that important. But what is important is how John the Baptist's disciples respond to that argument. In verse 26, they're obviously still miffed about the argument they just had with one of John's Jewish critics. And they come up to John and they say, Rabbi, uh, that man over there, uh, the one you told us about on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everybody is going to him. Well, why were John's disciples so irritated? I think there were a couple reasons. Yeah, they were jealous. I think they were also offended. 
They were offended that Jesus had come into John's backyard and snatched up John's customers. And they were jealous that those customers liked Jesus more. Does that sound pretty much on point? They were jealous and they were offended. They were offended and they were jealous. John's disciples thought they were being good, loyal followers by being upset and, def- and offended on John's behalf. You ever have a friend like that? That friend thinks you're, they're doing you a favor by being offended on your behalf? Like they're defending your honor or something? It's like, I'm not offended myself. Why are you doing that? But that's how they were. They were offended on his behalf, thinking they were doing him a favor. John, you don't have to take this. You shouldn't have to take a back seat to anyone. You must become greater. Jesus must become less. You must increase. Jesus must decrease. Interestingly, it wasn't just John the Baptist who dealt with overzealous followers who were ready to get out the torches and the pitchforks and go to bat for the master that they followed. We find this happening with Moses. You can read about it in Numbers chapter 11. Some of Moses' followers were offended on his behalf when he wasn't offended. Happened to Jesus in Luke chapter 9. Jesus at times had his followers offended over things. Remember, the sons of thunder wanted to call down lightning to strike the guys that were not treating Jesus the way they thought that Jesus should be treated. Those guys were a little overzealous as Jesus' followers. So we find this at times in Scripture. So with that in mind, Warren Wearsby, I think, makes this excellent point. He writes, A leader often suffers more from his zealous disciples than from his critics. Wow. Think about that. Sometimes we we suffer more from our overzealous disciples than from our critics. William Barclay says much the same thing. He just says it a little differently. He writes, Sometimes a friend's sympathy can be the worst possible thing for us. It can make us feel sorry for ourselves and encourage us to think that we have not had a fair deal. Ever been in that, those shoes? A friend or family member thinks they're doing you a favor and they end up making you feel worse because they're trying to get you all riled up over something that maybe to you is water off a duck's back, water under the bridge, old news. Jesus has helped you go through it. He's helped you move on and yet they're trying to get you stirred up and riled up again. It's a great point. Sometimes friend's sympathy is the worst possible thing for us. So how did John the Baptist respond to his zealous disciples? How did he respond to his friend's misguided sympathy? Uh, Spoiler alert, he handled it marvelously. He humbled himself, and here's how he responded, beginning in verse 27, still here in John chapter 3. Notice how John the Baptist responds. To this John replied, A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. Or as some translations put it, he must increase. And I must decrease. Wow. Wow. It would have been so easy for John to feel offended and to feel mistreated 
especially considering the fact that his friends had already circled the wagons. After all I've done for Jesus, after all the sacrifices I've made, after all the days and nights I've spent out here in this God-forsaken desert, after all the locusts I've eaten, I didn't get the lamb burgers, I got the locust burgers. I didn't get the nice silk clothing, I got the burlap-feeling camel's hair clothing. I didn't have a lot of friends. I lost more friends than I gained. After all I've been through for you, Jesus, this is the thanks that I get. It's easy to feel offended, isn't it? Any idiot can feel offended. It's not hard. Anyone can feel offended. It's easy to feel wounded. It's easy to feel unappreciated and kicked to the curb. All of us have been there. It's easy to feel those things, but John the Baptist was, in Jesus' mind, the greatest man because he didn't take the easy road that I've often taken. He didn't take the easy road that you have often taken. I know firsthand how easy it is to complain about our lot in ministry because I've done it many times. God, I came all the way up here to the high desert. It's so stinking hot in the summertime. It's cold in the winter. That wind is awful. The church is small. It's not growing. I did this, and I did that, and I suffered this, and I suffered that, and I lost these friends, and I was building up this ministry, and people walk out the door, and wah, 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 wah. It's easy to complain. It's easy to feel slighted. It's easy to complain to God about how things have turned out that might have been different than the way you had imagined them. But John the Baptist was a better man than I. He was humble when he could have felt offended and mistreated. In verses 27 through 30, John's response to his disciples' frustration and jealousy reveals why Jesus considered him the greatest. Instead of following his ego into a trap, John corrects his disciples by clarifying three points. Number one, you find in verse 27. If God doesn't give it, man doesn't get it. Right? Say that with me. If God doesn't give it, man doesn't get it. Isn't that true? So John says, in essence, in verse 27, it's easy to forget that all leaders serve at God's pleasure. Leadership is an undeserved gift from God, and He can snatch it away at any moment. As Job understood so well, God has the sovereign right to give and take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Therefore, no leader can legitimately claim any entitlement to his or her position. No leader can claim a divine right to lead. I don't care what the British royalty says. There is no divine right to lead. Leadership is never a right. It's a gift. It's an act of grace. It's a privilege. That is true of leadership, that is true of power, that is true of authority. Leadership and power and authority are a gift from God. They are a privilege from God. They are an act of grace from God. And as you serve Jesus Christ, inevitably there will be some mountaintop experiences. The teenagers and a few adults, young adults and I experienced that this last week. That was a mountaintop experience. And as we serve Christ, there are bound to be some of those. And from our human perspective, our ministry during those mountaintop experiences is so successful. 
Services are standing room only. There's lots of excitement. There's lots of life impact as lives are being changed. We all experienced that, those of us who were here two weeks ago, when I was hoping for six baptisms on Decision Sunday, and God more than doubled that. We had 13. And man, God just knocked our socks off two weeks ago. That was a mountaintop experience, wasn't it? But I think it was just the month before that we had a Decision Sunday and had zero baptisms. And so from a human perspective, this past Decision Sunday was wildly successful. And the one the month before was a failure. That's the human perspective. But God's perspective isn't the same as ours, is it? You see, as you serve Jesus Christ, there will inevitably be these mountaintop experiences. But as you serve Him, there will inevitably be some valleys as well. And from a human perspective, the ministry is floundering. There are more empty chairs than people. Those who do come seem upset or apathetic, and not many lives are being changed. These moments are not so wonderful, right? Well, John the Baptist would disagree with us. He would disagree. John reminds his disciples to keep their ministry in its proper perspective. When we're serving God, our ministry mountaintops, And our ministry valleys are both gifts from God and are held equally in the hands of God. Do you believe that today? Think about the implication for your own life. Your ministry successes from a human perspective are equally in the hands of God as your ministry failures from a human perspective. When you are obeying the Lord Jesus Christ and you are following the Lord Jesus Christ, whether it's in your marriage, whether it's with your kids, whether it's with your grandkids, whether it's with your parents, whoever it's with, work, school, wherever you might be, even in Walmart, as you're doing what God has called you to do, from a human perspective, you'll have some interactions that seem like an absolute failure. And you'll have some that seem like a grand success. You've got to understand God uses both. God holds both in His very capable and sovereign hands. When we're serving God, He holds both the highs and the lows in His hands. And we do what? We remain faithful. We remain available. We remain obedient. And we leave the results up to Him. Number two, John points out in verse 28 that God has always given me a subordinate role to Christ. Say that with me. God has always given me a subordinate role to Christ. John must have been disappointed in his disciples in their zeal to defend their rabbi's honor and get him back on top. They seem to have forgotten the whole reason for his ministry in the first place. John was never the man on top, was he? He never was. He would never be the man on top. John wasn't born to be the Christ. He was born to be the forerunner of the Christ. He had told this to his disciples time and again, but evidently it didn't sink in. They had forgotten the whole reason he had been sent in the first place, to go ahead of Jesus, not to somehow try to upstage and replace Jesus. As the forerunner to Jesus, John had two important jobs. Job number one was to prepare the way for Christ, and job number two was get out of the way once Christ showed up. That was his two-part job description. Prepare the way, then get out of the way. And don't you think that's a pretty good job description for you and me as we follow Christ? You prepare the way for Christ. You prepare the way through conversations with your family members and friends and co-workers and classmates. You prepare them to receive the gospel. You prepare them to hear about Jesus. And then you allow Jesus to come and do his thing. 
We prepare the way, and then we get out of the way. We have problems in our ministry. We have problems in impacting lives for Christ when we get in the way of Jesus, doing what Jesus does so well. And so we prepare the way, and we get out of the way. From the moment he was born, John the Baptist had a subordinate role to Christ. He understood that. He owned that. And if God wanted him to be subordinate to another preacher or to another rabbi or to another priest, John was okay with that too because it wasn't about him. It was about Jesus. And as long as Jesus Christ was glorified, John the Baptist was content and thrilled that Christ was glorified. William Barclay makes this great point. He writes, It would ease life a great deal if more people were prepared to play the subordinate role. It would save us a lot of resentment and heartbreak if we realized that there are certain things which are not for us. And if we accepted with all our hearts and did with all our might the work that God has given us to do, to do a secondary task for God makes it a great task. Any task done for God is necessarily great. Let that sink in. Any task done for God is necessarily great. As we went to Colorado Springs this last week, there was no one task greater than another. Playing basketball with those seven-year-old twin boys, that was a marvelous act of ministry. No greater than driving in a nail on a, a casing or a baseboard fixing a planter in the backyard. Some of you here at the church hand out bulletins. That is a great task when you do it for God. Amen? Because God makes it great because it's done for Jesus. You set up a canopy. You set up a chair. You put chairs away. You're in the nursery holding babies. Whatever it is that you do, that is a great task if it's done for Jesus Christ. On my desk, our secretary, Holly, uh, several years back, got me one of my favorite gifts uh, that I've ever been given by someone at the church. And it was a tiny little plaque with one of my favorite quotes on it. A quote by Brother Lawrence, a 16th century monk in a monastery. For whatever reason, I guess they didn't like him. They gave him the worst job in the monastery, which in those days was to be the cook. And they they shoved him into that that, uh, kitchen, a dark and, and tiny little kitchen, required him to make all the meals, and he had to be the first one awake to make breakfast. And you know the routine. He was given the worst job. And he had this beautiful quote. He said, I turned my little omelet in the pan for the love of God. He didn't mind being given the worst task because he realized that if he's doing it for Jesus, it is a great task. Whatever God has called you to do, he doesn't necessarily call you to stand up and preach on a Sunday morning. That's okay. My task is no greater than yours. Whatever he's called you to do, you do it in love for God. And it becomes a great task as it's done for him. John the Baptist understood that. Anything we do for him is a wonderful, great task. Finally, in verses 29 through 30, John points out, Jesus must become greater and I must become less. Say that with me. Jesus must become greater and I must become less. Because many of you have different translations that say increase, decrease. Say that with me. Jesus must increase and I must decrease. John shares a beautiful illustration here. In first century Israel... The friend of the bridegroom was more important than the best man in a wedding today. The friend of the bridegroom was uh, that man the groom chose to organize the wedding feast. He would send out the invitations to the wedding feast. Once that feast took place, he would make sure everything was in order. And do you know what the most important job of the bridegroom's friend was? The friend of the bridegroom's most important job was to guard the chastity of that bride 
at that wedding banquet. And so there would be a specific time during that up to seven day banquet where the bride would slip away into the bridal chamber, chamber and that bridegroom's friend would stand guard and he wouldn't let anyone into that chamber until he heard on the other side of the door the voice of the bridegroom that he recognized. And when he heard the bridegroom's voice, he would open the door, he would let the bridegroom in, and then the friend would exit and close the door, rejoicing that he had fulfilled his task faithfully. His job was over. The bride and groom were together. And John the Baptist latches on to that cultural beautiful role that that bridegroom's friend played. And he says, that's me. That's me. I've done everything I could do to prepare for the bridegroom to come. And now the bridegroom has come and he is coming to Israel. He's preaching to Israel. He's baptizing those who are choosing to follow Jesus as Savior and Lord. He's drawing great crowds. He's doing what he was born to do. He's doing what God the Father sent him to earth to do. And like that bridegroom's friend who is leaving the chamber, I am rejoicing that Jesus is doing all that he is going to do. And I'm rejoicing that somehow, some way, I have faithfully finished the race that God put me on this earth to do. I fulfilled my role. I'm not jealous. I'm thrilled. I'm not upset. I'm, I'm not offended. Jesus is here. And more and more people are realizing He's here. He must become greater. I must become less. He must increase. I must decrease. I love... Well, Bible scholar F.F. F. Bruce has to say about John the Baptist, he writes, It's not easy to see another's influence growing at the expense of one's own. It's even less easy to rejoice at the sight. But John found his joy completed by the news which his disciples brought. When he saw so many attracted to Jesus because of his witness, he rested content. He must grow greater. I must grow less. Are John's last recorded words in this gospel. Now, that's an interesting thing for F.F. F. Bruce to say because we have verse 31 here, don't we? And verse 32, and verse 33, and 34, and 35, and verse 36. There's still another, what is that, five, six verses left in the chapter. Why does F.F. F. Bruce say that these are John's final words? Because in the original Greek language, there are no quotation marks. And so we have to guess where John the Baptist's words end and John the Gospel writer's words begin. Because at times in the Gospel of John, the Apostle John will write a little commentary on what has just transpired. And so F.F. F. Bruce believes, as do I, that John the Baptist's words end at the end of verse 30 and John the Apostle's commentary begins in verse 31. So if that's the case... The last words recorded in the book of John, of John the Baptist, were these glorious words in verse 30. He must become greater. I must become less. He must increase. I must decrease. You talk about famous last words? That's pretty awesome, isn't it? Pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. Let's finish the chapter. What does John the Apostle have to say? He writes in verse 31, The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. 
For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. I'll just highlight a few of the things that the Apostle John shares in these six verses. For starters, the Apostle John reiterates in verse 31 that as great as John the Baptist was, he couldn't hold a candle to Jesus. Amen? Jesus is far superior to John because he is not from the earth. Jesus is from heaven. Next, the Apostle John points out in verse 35 that God the Father loves Jesus. And that's a really important point. We all remember John 3:16 once again, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 3:16 lets us know that God loves you so much that He gave you Jesus. Amen? But oftentimes we don't notice what God says through the Apostle John in verse 35 that God loved Jesus so much that he gave him you. Isn't that cool? Huh. You and Jesus are a match made in heaven. God so loved you that he gave you Jesus. And God so loved Jesus that he gave Jesus you. The question is, will you accept this match made in heaven? Will you accept Christ and love him in return. Finally, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Here at the end of chapter 3, the Apostle John reiterates a point that Jesus made clear to Nicodemus earlier in the chapter. If we reject Jesus Christ, we will perish in our sin, but if we accept him in faith, we'll be blessed with the gift of eternal life. What a wonderful way to end the chapter. Let me uh, end this message with three life lessons that we can draw from this passage today. Let's start with number one, life lesson number one. Be very careful that your sympathy for others doesn't encourage them to be bitter or jealous. This is so important. I want you to say it with me. Be very careful that your sympathy for others doesn't encourage them to be bitter or or jealous. Now this is more important than the number of you that were actually saying it with me, so we're going to do it again. Be very careful that your sympathy for others doesn't encourage them to be bitter or jealous. I I can almost guarantee you that you've done this at some time or another. I can tell you for a fact I've done this at some time or another. William Barclay's quote bears repeating, Sometimes a friend's sympathy can be the worst possible thing for us. It can make us feel sorry for ourselves and encourage us to think that we have not had a fair deal. This is a much bigger problem than most of us realize. So often when people feel like they've gotten ignored or unfairly treated, we validate their toxic thoughts and we validate their toxic feelings. Instead of responding like John the Baptist did. When speaking to a Christian who feels shafted, remind them that God is in control. Encourage them to be content with what God has given them. And urge them to rejoice with others that God is blessing. Can we do that? When someone feels shafted, can you respond like John the Baptist? Tell that person, especially if they're a Christian, hey, don't forget... God's got this. 
God's got this. Our Christian friends and our family members need to hear this more than they hear it from us. God truly has got this. He's got it. He knew you were going to get fired. He knew you were going to get that eviction notice. He knew that that accident was going to happen. He knew that your insurance was going to lapse. He knew this. He knew that you were going to get that diagnosis. He knew it ahead of time. God has got this. He's in control. Remind them. Encourage them to be content with what God has given them. That doesn't mean there aren't times where you know we roll up our sleeves and get ready for a, a little scuffle. There's times when God calls us to scuffle. But not every single little thing that happens to us that's not as pleasant as we like. Well, we got to be able to roll with more stuff than we roll with. Encourage them. Be content with what God has given them. Yeah, maybe God took something away. Be content with what He hasn't taken away. And finally, urge them to rejoice with others whom God is blessing. This is the hardest one. You get passed up for that promotion and it goes to John over there. Can you bring yourself to rejoice over John's good fortune? Can you rejoice over the fact that John got the promotion that you wanted and not be bitter, not be angry, not be unforgiving? Well, thank God that John got that position because with that new position comes new headaches. (laughs) I'm content where I am. God, if another opportunity arises, I'll apply for that one too. But I'm just putting it in your hands. And if I don't get it, I say, thank you, Jesus, because you have placed me where you want me. And I trust you as long as I'm doing my part, not being lazy, sitting on my hands, doing nothing. If I'm doing my part in obedience to you and faithfulness to you, I'm going to trust you with the results. I'm truly going to trust you with the results. Life lesson number two, as you serve Christ, be content with every season of ministry, the highs, the lows and everything in between. Remember that the world's view of success and God's view of success are not the same. God doesn't call us to be successful by the world's standards. Instead, He calls us to be obedient and faithful. And once again, we leave the results up to Him. Sometimes the results God brings will knock our socks off. At other times, the results will be underwhelming. But God knows what He's doing. Amen? He truly does know what He's doing. He's always true to His promise to work all things together for the good of those who love God and are called to carry out His purposes. So trust Him. Be content to be used by Him on the mountaintops and be content to be used by Him even in the valleys. Finally, life lesson number three. As you serve Christ, make this your motto. He must become greater. I must become less. Say that with me. He must become greater. I must become less. He must become greater. I must become less. He must increase. I must decrease. He must increase. I must decrease. Make that a a bit of a mantra going through your mind and your heart. Remember it. Own it. That is why you are here to glorify Jesus Christ in everything that you say, in everything that you do. This past month I've discovered some beautiful buried treasure in this chapter that I didn't know was here. It's like a a hidden gem. The more I study God's Word, the more I realize stuff. I, I like, how did I miss that years ago? But I never knew this until one of the commentators I was reading a couple weeks ago pointed this out. And this is that little nugget I want to share with you today in closing. This word must is used three significant ways in John chapter 3. First, John chapter 3, verse 7. It's the must of the sinner. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. 
Then there is the must of the Savior. In John 3, verse 14, Jesus said, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And then there's the must of the servant here in John 3, verse 30. John the Baptist said, he must become greater. I must become less. What a wonderful summary to John 3. You and I must be born again. In order for that to be possible, Jesus must be lifted up to the cross. And once we are born again, he must become greater. And we must become less. He must increase. We must decrease. There was a certain pastor years ago who had a thriving ministry in a small town. And little by little as the years passed, fewer and fewer people were coming to church. You see, there was a new younger pastor who had moved into town and started a church just down the street. And as the first pastor's congregation began to shrink, one Sunday night he looked out at the crowd and three quarters of the chairs were empty. And he decided to ask the question, he said, why are so many people deciding not to come to church anymore? Why are there so few of us? And one man kind of sheepishly raised his hand and answered the question. He said, well, Pastor, that's because most of our congregation has started going down the street to hear the new preacher. The pastor said, is that so? Well, I suppose we should follow them. And he stepped out of the pulpit, gathered his congregation together, and together they walked down the street and went to service that night at that other church. That is a good pastor. That is a John the Baptist type of pastor. It's not about me. It's not about my ministry. It's all about Jesus Christ. And if Jesus Christ is being glorified and honored and choosing to work through another pastor down the street more than he's working through me, then praise God. Because ultimately it's not about us. It's about him. So in whatever you do, rejoice on the mountaintops. They're glorious. Rejoice on the mountaintops. But even in the valleys, if you are being faithful and obedient, rejoice even there in the valleys. As long as Jesus Christ is becoming greater, he must increase. I must decrease. He must become greater. I must become less. Lord Jesus, would you please be glorified in our ministry. Be glorified at Impact Christian Church. And I pray that we would not despise small beginnings. From a worldly point of view, Lord, we want to see thousands coming to church. And we would look at that from a human vantage point and say, that's a successful ministry. But Lord, we know you look at things much differently. Ultimately, we live for those six words. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Help us to follow in the footsteps of John the Baptist rejoicing over the highs and the lows, rejoicing as people come and rejoicing as people go, as long as our Lord Jesus is glorified in all of it. Please, Lord Jesus, humble us before you. Help us to be content with where you have us. Help us to be faithful and obedient. In Jesus' name, amen.
you are here today and you've never made that decision to accept Jesus as Savior and Lord, we encourage you to make that decision today. There's no better way to live than following Jesus. It's not complicated to become a follower of His. It's not easy to follow Him, but it's not complicated to become a follower. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Are you at a point where you're willing to repent of your sins and put Him in the driver's seat of your life? He starts calling the shots, not you. You ride shotgun. He's now driving this thing. Are you at a point where you're willing to confess Him with your mouth and not be ashamed to say, I follow Jesus? I follow Jesus. Amen, Alice. And if you're at that point, the Word of God says be baptized, buried with Christ, raised to walk a new life. Make it clear to God, the angels, anyone that's watching, I'm following Jesus now. If you need prayer, if you need to find out more about following Jesus, whatever your prayer needs or uh, conversations you need to have, Alan's going to be up here today. Come on up, Alan. Uh, I like to call Alan our, our elder on wheels. And uh, didn't he do a great job preaching God's Word last week? Thank you, brother. And uh, I'm going to ask Christina to come up. Christina was on our mission trip this last week, and I got to be on the raft with her as we went whitewater rafting on Friday. So just 48 hours ago, we were bouncing up and down the Arkansas River, uh, holding on for our dear lives so we wouldn't die in the rapids. And I looked over at Christina at times, and, and at times there were some looks of panic, but you did great. Uh, Christina is a wonderful young lady that loves the Lord. Would you come up, and she'll be available to pray with you as well if you have that need today. Our God is awesome. We are so glad that you were here today. Uh, if you need prayer, if you need anything, let us know. God bless you as you obey and serve our Lord Jesus Christ. Go get them. <laughs>